Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Today's guest talking to Robin is the US author Jasmine Chan uh, about her new book, The School for Good Mothers, which you might have come across recently because it was on Obama's summer reading list. Before we get to the conversation, thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. You can join them by subscribing at patreon.com slash bookshambles to get lots of extra goodies, extended episodes. You know the drill by now. And one of the perks that Patreons got this week was uh, advance notice about tickets being on sale for this year's Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People shows. Yes, we are back in December, as always, on the 16th and the 17th, uh, evening shows on both days, and also a Saturday matinee on the 17th for families, all profits to charity as ever. Robin hosting as ever and lots of special guests. Some of the people confirmed to appear already include Grace Petrie and Chris Jackson and Helen Chersky and Josie Long, Anil Seth, Jen Gupta, Erica McAllister and lots, lots more as well. Cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons is where you can go to get tickets. Uh, it's at King's Place in London as always. I know a lot of people... Uh, always kind of message us and say, oh, are you going to bring it outside of London again like we have done in the past? We hope to uh, do that again probably next year. Obviously, uh, it's a it's a difficult show to tour for lots of reasons. Uh, and, you know, after the last two years, it's even more difficult. But uh, next year, we hope to be on the road with it again. So you can all be a part of it. We are on the road, though, with uh, Robin's Bibliomaniac Tour. Uh, you can go on the website and get the dates for that. We're all up and down the UK with that show uh, this year and next. And obviously Robin's on tour with Brian with the Horizons Tour as well. So if you're not in London or can't get down to London, there are plenty of ways you can see us. Enough of that. Let's get on to today's episode. Here is Robin and Jasmine. Hello. Welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. It's still Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, even though Josie hasn't been here for quite a while. But she's going to be back soon, probably. She's very, very busy. And uh, her Edinburgh Fringe show has gone tremendously well, and I presume she's going to be touring that show as well. So watch out for what she's up to. Thank you very much, everyone who supports us via Patreon. Um, I won't even bother. It's it's too hoary to go on about where you can go. If you're really interested, you'll find a way, and I don't want to shove it onto you. So if you can, it's great that you do. If you just like listening to the show, that's great as well. Thanks. So let's not waste any more time. Uh, now, this is... I, I've, I've just been talking to the, the the author that I'm about to speak to about the problem that I have about talking about her novel because it is a novel that I read yesterday uh, in one fell swoop and you will probably read it in one fell swoop if you can as well because once you start, you just need to keep finding out what's happening next and the psychological makeup of the people in. But I don't want to give anything away about it. So we're going to see if we can talk for the whole podcast without actually telling you anything about the book. But at the same time, time telling you enough that you decide that you must read this book 
I'm not sure whether the plan's going to work, but uh, with Jasmine Chan, we're going to find out. She is the author of The School for Good Mothers. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Now, firstly, so are you, you're, this, this book, do you think most people will be, from picking it up and looking at the cover to getting through the first pages and then certain kind of points uh, as, as it grips ever tighter, do you think other people will be like me going, no, I wasn't expecting that? Well, that's always the hope when you're writing is to, to keep people turning pages. One of my early writing teachers in, in grad school talked about how the process of narration and writing is a continual reaffirmation of taking the reader by the hand. You have to take the reader by the hand every single page and never let their hand go because with the way the world is now. And I mean, it's even more so in, in 2022, everyone has so many other things to do. So you, you kind of can't say, okay, here's the, the slow part. I'm going to have five chapters of slow part and then get back to the, the main storyline. So I, I think that, that I, I was trying to, to keep the reader engrossed throughout. So I'm so glad you had that experience, but reading in one fell soup is a, a touch stressful, I would guess. Yeah, it is. I, I have to admit, if, I, if I'd felt there was more of an option, I didn't want to stop reading it, but there were those moments where I've, I've had a few books recently where the psychological kind of damage that you feel, or sometimes when you're not with your book, but sometimes you're reading about a character who is so utterly uh, reprehensible that you decide that if you stay in their mind for too long, you know, if you don't have a, a break every 90 pages, you may well become as reprehensible as the character in the pages. So that's not something you have to tackle, uh, I think, with your book. I think it's just the... I mean, when did... I'll ask you a few just... I'll start general, and then we'll see where we get to, which is, first of all, the people that you feel, when you were a child, who were the authors that you rushed to? Who were the ones that kind of... Now you look back and you think, oh, that book changed me. Well, if we're going to go back to the very beginning of my reading life, I the, the earliest book I read that I remember reading was James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. And I was a definite early reader of um, the Ramona Quimby books by Beverly Cleary. Like, I don't know if those are popular in the UK, but Ramona Quimby was uh, a character who spoke to my soul early on. But early books when, when I was in university probably would be Wuthering Heights and Wired Sargasso Sea. And then when I started writing in earnest, I, I became very obsessed with Michael Andache and Ann Carson. And like, like most people in the world, I'm obsessed with Joan Didion and think that she's perfect in every way. I, I love Angela Carter and Angela Carter's stories really, really inspired me. Let's see who else, uh, Marguerite Dura also. I mean, those are those are some of the books that stay with me as I move from one apartment to another and I have to shed books along the way. Those are some of the books that that will never be given away and will always it will always stay on my bookshelves. And I will. Right. I'm going oh, to have to give away something about the book. Like I said, you just have go and buy. Right. Stop listening to the podcast now. Go out and buy the book, uh, read it all and then come back and listen to the bit from now on. So uh, go out now. Just pause the podcast. Go out. I'll give you 12 hours to read the book. Right. There we go. Right. Everyone who's come back now. They paused. I believe they they bought your book, Jasmine, and now they'll have read it. So we're fine to talk about it in any way we want. Um, but I, I, the first thing I was thinking about when I was reading the book is that for so many mothers that I've spoken to, the constant sense 
of strangers judging your motherhood. Uh, and I wondered, as, as you know, you have a, 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 a quite a young daughter, and I wondered how much, as as you moved around as a, as a as a young mother, how much that played its part. The, the the fact that people can suddenly go into your space and suddenly give you advice and suddenly tell you how you're wrong, even though they're, they're strangers. You know, at times it, it felt quite painful. It, it really, you know, the, the claustrophobia of what it must be like to to be a mother feeling the the, the this penetration of a judgmental gaze. Well, I'm. I'm glad that that resonated with you. I mean, certainly that was one of the intentions of the book because um, without giving anything away, I think the book takes some of the, the feeling of being watched and judged and makes it literal, which readers will find out about as the book goes on. But I would say in, in my experience, the, the feeling of judgment and the unwanted advice begins the moment you're trying for a baby. Like if, if, if you happen to tell anyone we're trying to get pregnant, like just think about it for a moment and maybe decide not to share that news because because suddenly the advice will start coming about like what to eat how much to drink like whether or not to consult a doctor at this stage like and also if you're um trying to have a baby and you're over 35 like the the advice will be um even more detailed and i would say yes the the judgment definitely ramps up when you're pregnant um everyone will have something to say about even the most innocuous things. Like I, I gained the exact correct amount of weight. Like there's a, for a person of my height and age, and there's a, there's definitely a, a whole chart about like, what's the appropriate amount of weight to gain. So I, I gained the correct amount. My, my baby bump was pretty compact until probably right before I gave birth. Like, like my, my stomach was pretty small in relation to like the actual stage of the pregnancy, everyone commented on it. So, so if you're, if your belly is very big, people will say things like, oh, you must be having twins. You must be due soon. Like, and things like that. But if you're, if your belly happens to be very like to be on the smaller side, people say, oh, you haven't gained enough weight. You must not be eating enough. Are you, are you sure, are you sure you're going to be okay? Like, have you checked with your doctor? everyone commented on it. So even though I was following the rules, there were still, um, there was still a lot of judgment. And I think the thing that shocked me, because I, to rewind a bit, I, I actually started the book years before becoming pregnant. So, so I ended up having to rewrite almost the entire book after having a baby, because I got so many things wrong. Like, like even things like how much toddlers talk in the early drafts of the book, I had uh, the character of Harriet speaking in paragraphs, like full, full paragraphs, like she's like an eight or nine-year-old or something, because I didn't understand that an 18 or 20-month-old child is barely speaking. So I had the, the toddlers speaking in paragraphs. Um, I had toddlers bathed in sinks. I didn't know how big a toddler was. So, so I had to redo things like that. But I also folded in, um, after I started rewriting, I folded in a lot of the real-life experiences I had, which is just even like the judgment on the playground. Like I remember um, when my daughter had just started walking, I did not understand that in your diaper bag, you should bring band-aids because they fall a lot. And I remember I learned this lesson because at one point my daughter fell and scraped her knee and there was some blood running down her leg. And I, I was a few feet away on the playground. I happened to not see it. And another mother turned to me and gave me this very withering look and said, um, your child is bleeding. And it was just said in this tone that made me like, 
kind of burn in shame on the spot, like, oh my God, my child's bleeding and someone else has, is pointing this out to me. So that was just an example of just sort of like the casual stuff that happens. But but yes, I, I feel like there's so much judgment, not just from strangers, but also from family, from your your mom, friends, um, like even, even without, even with the best intentions, people have something to say. I mean, we've all been parented and, and a lot of people are parents. And so it, I mean, I do it too. I mean, I try to preface it with, I know I shouldn't give you any advice, but <laughs> here, here's some advice anyways. But I, I think that I, I, I think that there's a new generation of writers and artists and filmmakers, um, and activists who are trying to push back against that and and try to recognize mothers as deserving of more more gentleness and understanding. Is that I, I mean, have you found that the reaction to the book that quite a few people have said to you, mothers have have said, "Oh, I have so often had that sense of being." a bad mother that you know to carry with you you try you keep your front and you look like everything's fine but inside there is almost a kind of you know a, a, well almost an imposter syndrome of motherhood that whatever you're doing is 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 wrong uh and that everyone else is being a better mother I mean I know that's about so many different things in the world but it seems to me that again that sense of being a, a mother is, is one of those ways in which people can go I know I'm doing it look at all those mothers I mean you mentioned I, I, I did underline the sentence then I forgot to actually mark the page but there's a certain line uh about is it, is it sorry for uh where, where is it um but the mothers she met are as petty as newly minted sorority sisters. And you have just that little, again, that newly minted sorority sisters, that that almost that Heather's look. If Heather's grew up <laughs> and you suddenly have, you know, everyone, oh, look at how bad she's mothering. The Heather's um, recast with 40-something moms would be an incredible movie. <laughs> Some, someone needs to make that movie. I mean, it might be a, a little too... Um, I don't know if that would be too dark or not, but I, I, Heather's was a very meaningful movie to me growing up. So I, I, I really appreciate that reference. You know, and when you're talking about the reactions I've gotten from moms, I, I have heard from a lot of um, moms about how much they identified with Frida and how much they identified that sense of judgment. But honestly, the, the majority of the messages I received from readers are about how much they cried. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing to be able to move people. I know my marketing team is never going to do this, but I, I feel like we could build a book as like the most upsetting book of the year because most of the messages I've received are about like my face is still blotchy from from tears. I stayed up all night crying. So um, I, I will warn that is it is not a lighthearted read, but there are there are funny parts in there too. Yeah, I think that bit of because uh, from a very early stage. I just felt I felt so much for her. And you just and the moment that you find out, I mean, you know, the the the, the husband, the ex-husband, is I suppose, you know, th there's a ghastliness again. I can see why, you know, on the cover of uh, uh, Pandora Sykes' quote, destined to be a feminist classic, because that sense of the fact that, you know, her partner, her ex-husband, he manages to get away with having created so much of, of the situation that destroys her. And he manages to, to leave untainted, as far as I can see, by his own actions um, while she is destroyed. 
And and that bit that that you know quite early on, I mean that's about 40, 50 pages in. You, I, I felt there was a real knot in the stomach dealing with him and seeing her own kind of destruction. Well, I, I will say the character of Gust um, Frieda's ex-husband was incredibly fun to write, partly because he and um, his new partner, Susanna, are really nice. Like they, they do these things that are so destructive to Frida's life and to the family life, but they're, they're really do-gooders. And so they, they want to still like have a harmonious relationship and they, they want to lead with kindness, but it's a, a, I think my, my agent said that it was a, a beautiful gaslighting that happens because they're, they're just never like fully aware of Frida's pain or, or the fact that they, that a family has been destroyed. It's, it, it immediately jumped to, to co-parenting and trying to figure out like a, a new fa- like way to, to have like a new modern family. And I, I think I was, I was really interested in writing these, these villain characters who you, you can't quite hate because they're, they're loving and they're, they're our, they are technically good parents and they're, they're completely devoted to parenting, but I think in my life, I've always found it really frustrating with, with people I met early on who volunteered for humanitarian causes and like took um, world changing jobs, but who were very cruel in their personal lives. And that, that disconnect always really bothered me. So I, I gave Gust and Susanna some of those qualities. That's funny, actually, yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine just before I started reading this, and she was talking about someone she worked with who was one of the most destructive people in terms of gaslighting others and was also always tweeting and on Facebook going, oh, I'm just off to uh, go and save these people by doing this thing. And so, so you know, in, in, in some people's view, she was the most charitable human being at the same time as just leaving, you know, an enormous path of destruction behind her in, in what she emotionally did to people. Yeah, I think it's it's a hard thing to be a kind person in your personal life. I mean, you have to work at it. And I think I've always just found it really problematic when someone does a job that's helping strangers or like trying to trying to better a community, but they're incapable of of showing that same kindness to their friends and family. What about the new age bullshit element? Because obviously that's part of their character. Oh, that was really you know, fun. <laughs> that's the bit that because the, the removal of the mercury fillings and then the eating of, I can't remember, it's some kind of forms of herb that will then refill the cavity and all of that kind of stuff. That that was, a, again, as you said, it's not like that they're evil, but you almost end up like a teenager just looking at them and going, this is just so unfair. Well, the, the new age bullshit was also really fun to write. And the funny thing was because I started the book in 2014, which is now like I'm telling you about the dark ages or something because it was so long ago in world events. Um, in 2014, the new age bullshit felt more new agey than it does now. Um, now it's just mainstream, like the the like some of the the stuff about crystals and non non toxic living is now just mainstream and like whereas before it felt more satirical so so it wasn't necessarily the case that i was trying to describe our world right now um it was it i think it felt more outlandish in in the earlier versions of the book but in 2022 this is just a thing now i mean i I certainly am probably more like Susanna in real life than I want to admit. Like, and I, I certainly have 
wanted my parents to buy the organic apples, not the regular apples and, and have done annoying things like that and talked about additives and sugar and a bunch of things that make me very fussy, but it's, it's really, it, it, I think it goes back to that, that culture of advice and judgment that you talked about. I mean, cause even what you feed your child and like what kind of milk you give them. Um, I mean, there are whole crazy forums online about, of people arguing about these kind of things. I mean, pretty much anything related to babies, children, motherhood, parenting, people can get really, really heated about it. It's as it, I mean, it seems that almost everything can become a cult because we're so desperate to find meaning that if you decide, you know, that you can create a, a, a cult of creating the perfect baby. And I mean, I, I remember when my son was born, uh, what was it, 14 years ago now, 14 and a half years ago, and, and those things, baby Einstein. Have you ever seen these things, baby Einstein? I I know of it uh, tangentially. Um, congratulations on 14 years of parenting. I can't quite imagine raising a teenager it sounds really hard oh do you know what he hasn't got he hasn't got difficult yet I mean oh, so, that's wonderful we, we still have adventures I'm waiting I wait all of the time but uh yeah we, we still go to the minions movies together and stuff like that so it's still it's oh still, okay thank you for giving me hope the uh, well that's what because you do you do really wait though because you hear so many nightmare stories and I think you know if you have a especially you know some people have a different kind of uh I suppose closeness or distance to their children but I yeah I, I keep waiting for that moment where we I, we, I know it's going to happen at some point but uh, so far, I think he's a much better human than me. Um, I hope he hasn't picked up all of my faults. But yeah, he. I, I just. Um, what was that? What was I talking about? The, the you're talking about baby Einstein. Yeah, baby Einstein. Sorry, thank you. The um, yeah, the baby Einstein thing, which was you know one of those ways of hothousing your child to be a genius, and it just seemed to me to be, as far as I remember, like videos of just blocks being moved, and it, it seemed to be actually a chance just to pretend you were doing something when actually you'd only put a video on. I mean, it was that long ago. I think it was probably on video rather than DVD, and. Um, and I find that that bit very quickly, it was like, nope, we don't need any of these things. You know, the, these things that are apparently going to create your child, turn your child into whatever you feel will be most pleasing for yourself. They seem to litter the world. And they, each one of them seems to have a, a cultish quality to them. You know, this came up recently because my, my daughter is about to start kindergarten. And we seem to be the only family that has not signed our child up for any after school or weekend activities. And I feel tremendous guilt about this but I've been telling myself that it's okay because she's only five and a half and that one of the things I learned from writing a book about the impossible pressures of on mothers in western culture is that it's okay to not be trying to cultivate and advance her at every stage like she's at a point where she's supposed to be learning to read and she has started reading but I it's not like I I feel like it would be appropriate to drill her on it every day and a lot of her friends are going to rock climbing camp and dance camp and karate camp and we are the only ones who sent her to the same camp for the whole summer because that was what we could manage logistically so her her extracurricular life is is definitely running up against her her parents' uh, limitations in, in terms of of scheduling and time, and it's it's something I think about a lot because I I keep wondering, am I supposed to be doing that? Like, should I be signing her up for violin or piano? Like, is she supposed to be taking ballet class? I mean, I'm very lucky that she really likes 
imaginative play and she really likes drawing and she's a, a pretty uh, self-sufficient child in that way and doesn't need like constant stimulation. But I, I definitely feel the social pressure of, of being the ones who are on the lazy side. And I, I think that I keep telling myself like when she's older, she'll be okay with it rather, rather than thinking like, why didn't I get to do all these things like my friends do? I think you, you'll get told there'll be a point, you know, if she really, that, that's my thought is that it's like, um, cause I, I think this is only in the last couple of generations, this relentless, you know, evening classes or whatever you want to call them, all of these extracurricular activities. They, I don't remember any of that being part of my growing up in the 1970s. It was just, you went to the woods and you climbed a thing. That was it. And, and I, and I, and I think it's quite interesting. Again, that competitive, it's a bit like the, the fear of in toilet. I remember a friend of mine saying, oh, I'm really worried about, I think it was her son. She went, it just, it's a toilet training. It just doesn't seem to be catching on. I said, look at it this way. How many friends do we have that we go to a bar with? And sometimes they go, Oh God, I'm so sorry. I've just shit myself. I just never got around to learning. I said, it will happen. It just might not happen at the same speed talking like my, my son, he, he wasn't very good at crawling, but then he walked quite early. And I think it was just, he didn't really like crawling. <laughs> it was like, you know, there's different patterns to all of these things. And the moment that everything becomes a pencil mark on the, yeah, I just, oh, I find it fascinating that that bit of, uh, again, it's it's another way of, of, of it's it's competitive, isn't it? It's not necessarily a true worry. It's, it's the worry is that your child is not as good as that child next door. Yeah, I found that in the last few years, I, I guess I've been surprised that I have not really worried about it. I thought that I would really be the kind of parent who worried about her child's achievement. But I, I think because while I was pregnant, I was reading books about the really pressure cooker American parenting culture. I think it also made me realize that I want my child to be happy and safe. And beyond that, we will figure it out. I mean, I, I definitely did all the correct clubs and did all the high achieving things to get into the university I wanted. Um, and that went fine, but I also like had depression and struggled in life. So it's not like it fixes everything. And it feels like wanting your child to be happy and safe is a tall enough order in our world. So, so I think she will hit the marks that she needs to hit at the right time at her own pace. But I've been thinking about it a lot because everyone around me is talking about the clubs they signed up for. And I, I just realized I can't handle that level of weekly scheduling. Yeah, I think that's a good reason. The, um, in terms of writing the book, I just wanted the, uh, the change, how, how different uh, your routine is in the way that you write a short story and the way of writing this novel, that, that how, how different did you find the kind of method of, of, of writing? You know, that's a great question that I actually have never been asked before. And I, I think that the actual writing and editing is not that different. Um, I mean, I'm someone who likes to write a very, very messy early draft and then cut. And my very first draft of this novel took a year and a half to write. I wrote all of it longhand. It's the typed up version fills like an entire humongous bin. I mean, it was just like, there's a whole plastic tub in my parents' basement of, of the, the very first draft. Um, because I find that I, I have to write longhand. Otherwise I'll just edit myself. If I'm, if I'm typing, I'll just end up 
writing and deleting so that by the end of a day's work, I'll have three sentences. So I, I find that I have to write longhand to get over the, the inner critic. But I think the really hard thing about writing a novel is that you have no idea if you'll ever finish. <laughs> and you have no idea if after you finish, anyone will want to read it. Because you, you really, in my case, I, I found that I was really deep into my obsession about this story and I felt that I, I had to finish it. But the, the uncertainty is, is really hard to deal with. And it certainly made me probably an unpleasant person <laughs> to live with because um, there was so much anxiety about, um, for me, harnessing my life to this particular project. And also it took so much longer than I, than I thought. I mean, I got a grant in 2017 to fund the completion of the novel. Of course, I didn't actually finish the novel until 2019. <laughs> so so I, I'd propose like, this is what I need to do for this last year of writing the book. And of course it took much longer than that. I had my daughter in 2017. Um, so I think throughout the novel writing, I learned that each step took so much longer than I expected. And then for me, it required almost a, like a daily recommitment to the project to, and also like a, a self pep talk about like, yes, this is worth doing. Yes, I can do it. It's going to be okay. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's going to be okay. Like <laughs> mental talk along the way. Certainly some people, um, have a less fraud experience. I've, I've heard of those people. I, I try not to think about them too much. No, they're mythic. They, it, I don't think, I think they're, they're very rare. Maybe the crime writers, there's a few crime writers I've met who seem to have uh, that specific ability, but uh, most novelists I've met seem to be in almost perpetual creative agony. So that's good, isn't it? It's good to know that, that your, your agony is, is shared. Yes, I, I appreciate the shared agony stories. The ones that I feel very jealous of are the the novelists who got it together and figured out their process and published really young. Cause I'm, I just turned 44 and I've been writing since I was 18. So this has been a, a very, very long road to the, to the first book. So when, when there's a lot of stories about um, writers who published in their earlier mid twenties, I just, I just try to tune those out a little bit <laughs> because yeah, what I think of Jean Reese. Think of Jean Reese with those first, what's it, four, four, four novels, and then from the time she was younger than you, uh, nothing, nothing until she was an old person, and then why to guess? I see. So you could have had that. You could have been one of those ones that went, "Where's she come from? She's amazing. It's the greatest author I've read. It's the best book by a twenty-four-year-old ever." And then you hit writer's block, and then you just become this mysterious figure. Whatever happened to? And then when you're eighty-nine, you come out with another novel. Well, I, like I said, I, I wish Jean Reese had had more comfort and happiness in her life. I, I think the, the hard thing with um, our society and the media and capitalism is that you're supposed to be producing all the time and at a certain speed. I mean, certainly I've been asked about my second book in pretty much every interview starting months before the book came out. And so it's, it's been very humbling to explain that, like, I've been promoting the book, I've been parenting a small child, I moved to another city, I'm just starting to write again, and, and I'm also very secretive, so, so I think I'll probably share 
what new work is about when it's done <laughs> and probably not along the way, but it really feels like um, with writers nowadays, you're supposed to have a book out every two years and you're supposed to be um, like on readers' minds in a certain way. Um, and so, and so that's been, that's been something to contend with, with mentally as I, as I get back to work. Yeah. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because I, yeah, I, uh, I think it's wonderful where sometimes you have people who go through this period of, of just in, incredibly kind of, you know, fecund time and then suddenly they disappear for a while and then something appears and then something else comes, you know, and, and, and that sense that it's not an automaton. It's not just a system of going, now I must write another book. It's a system of saying, do I have another book? Is there a book in my head or not? Actually, there isn't. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about you going back to 2014. Um, can you still picture that person who first started in longhand writing what is now this book in my hand? Well, yes, because this is a really rare instance where the idea came to me fully formed. I mean, the, the book came out of, of, so Frida's very bad day came out of a very good writing day, the kind of writing day you dream of having your whole life. And this has never happened before. And I, I pray that it will, some version of this will happen again. But I, I had taken myself to a friend's country house because um, I applied to a bunch of artist residencies and not gotten in. So I took my vacation days from my job and I went to a friend's house and I was snowed in and I was coming up with one terrible short story idea after another. And then one day I ended up just writing for six hours. And it, in that six hours of, of writing and like putting down all my crazy ideas was Frida's whole story and the idea of the school and her relationship with Harriet and the, the subplot about her marriage and really the voice of the book. So I can tell you exactly how that day went because it's never happened before. And, and it, it came at probably the 10 day mark of those two weeks where I thought, like, do I even know how to write fiction? Will I ever have another story idea again? But I, I think what allowed it to happen was that I felt very creatively free. And I, I was able to quiet my mind and not think about what the output would be, but to just, um, I guess, to, to feel the, the voice and to and to really be present. I mean, it is very hard to be completely present in the world right now and to just truly listen to what you're trying to do. So did you know then where, did you know where it was going to end? It was just that you, the finding the roads that led there, because as you said, I mean, I, I love that process that I hear from other people. And it's a process that I do, that bit where you write far too much and then you have to work out Oh no! Hang on a minute. That that bit of overgrowth is not required. That is just a, you know all of those things. Was that so? Did you did you know where you were going to end? But you you finding that way to that ending was what took all those years. Well, the actual days writing that I was mentioning um, contained like pretty much the entire plot in the the like what became that twenty page early draft. So it almost became like a skeleton of of the book itself and which I added to um, for about a year and a half. So I, I knew the ending that I was writing towards. Um, I think the things that changed along the way were how much time to devote to each section. I knew that I wanted to begin in Frida's regular world rather than begin at the school. And I wanted to, to really anchor 
readers in Frida's point of view and like have her and have her be the the eyes through which you experience the rest of the book um, before I introduced all the the other characters. Um, um, what really changed along the way was the the ending came much faster. I mean, there's a discarded 400 pages of of um, post school. So I'm just going to call it post school for to to keep the plot secretive. But I threw away so many other scenes, um, and I decided, I guess, to intentionally leave some of the high drama moments off screen because I I guess I really believe in letting the reader do some of the imaginative work and not spell everything out, and and that there is um, there is drama and momentum that's possible when you when you leave some of it unspoken. And we're, ne- we're nearly, uh, time's nearly up. And I, I wanted to just, what about when you're writing, who else can you read? Because I know some people cannot read anything that they think if it's anywhere near the world they're in. So there's a, a friend of mine who will read Agatha Christie because the stuff that she writes is so different to Agatha Christie. She can read that when she's writing. Do you have any kind of authors that you go, this is where I go to, to when I leave my book alone? Or are you still allowed anything? I'm still allowed anything. And I, I I have heard of these folks who don't read anything while they're writing their novel, but I wrote my novel for seven years before we were working with um, my publisher and my editor. So if I hadn't read anything in that time, I, I don't know how I would have fed myself creatively. I mean, I find that I have to read really good books to just keep the hope alive like like this is an amazing thing to do to make a book so some of my my favorites for inspiration are um Anne Carson um some of her early poetry collections I really love uh, the novel Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls which is about a lonely housewife who falls in love with a mythical sea creature who has escaped from a local lab. It's it's really one of the most original and crazy and beautiful books you'll ever read. I love Shirley Jackson. Um, I love stories by Karen Russell and Carmen Maria Machado. My, my friend, Diane Cook, who is a recent Booker finalist for Man V Nature. Um, no, recent Booker finalist for The New Wilderness. I, I, I also love and highly recommend her first collection called Man V Nature. And some of the other writers that I was inspired by, I, I, the book that I wish I had read earlier is Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. And I think that's out in the UK also. And it, that's a book where, that's the book that I wish I'd, writ, I'd written. And also where, I mean, Rachel and I know each other from years ago, but it's a book where I wish we'd been in touch earlier so we could have swapped drafts. Because I think that like we would have been great readers for each other during the process. But at, at the moment, I'm quite happy to just proselytize about her book to everyone. So for anyone who enjoyed my book, Night, Bo- Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder is the book to read next. Oh, I love that. I, Mrs. Caliban, though, that you've really, uh, that, that I've never read Mrs. Caliban. That sounds fantastic as well. I feel like it's my mission in, in, in interviews to get more, more of the word out about Mrs. Caliban. It was out of print for 30 years. So that might be why you haven't heard of it before, but it's, it's an amazing, um, slender, perfect novel. It's also when you, when you were talking about the book, it suddenly reminded me to thinking of sometimes how long people have to wait 
but that Alan Garner, I don't, do you know Alan Garner at all? He's a, 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 a British writer from the Northwest who, who uh, uh, his, his book Treacle Walker has just been nominated or is on the long list for the Booker Prize. And that is, and he's like 88 years old. And he's been writing, uh, you know, all the 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 Moonstone of Golmrath, the Owl Service, all of these wonderful books for kind of teenagers and 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 older, on again in a kind of slightly magical realist world, and uh, um, often dealing with myth. And I like the fact that he, you know, now he's eighty-eight, and it's like, ah, oh, yeah, do you know what? We still haven't. He needs to be on. And I hope he makes the shortlist because I think that's a wonderful thing to see. Well, another author on the long list is Percival Everett, and he was instrumental in the creation of this novel because I, I showed him the draft from my very good writing day, which was still just this skeleton of what the story could be. And and I had met him at a writing conference and he was my workshop teacher. And, and he said, you know, I don't want to make your life bad, but I think this is a novel. And, and he I, I think without that push, I'm not sure that I would have done it. And because I, I was planning to develop it as just a very complicated short story. And Percival really gave me um, the courage to, to try developing it into a longer project, which I'd never really done before. Um, to answer your question in part B of my answer, of, I, just, I just finally started um, writing fiction again this summer. And some of the books that were hugely inspiring to me just as like high art or the novel Matrix by Lauren Groff. Mm. I never thought I could be interested in medieval nuns, but I kind of, I would have read another like eight volumes of Matrix. And I really love the, the Copenhagen trilogy, but I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It's, I think it's Tove Ditlevsen. Right. And, and it's, it's a nonfiction account of her early life and, some something about the cadence of her sentences and the precision of her imagery and emotions it just really sparked something in my brain oh well that's fantastic now we now i think in the last minute we weren't a very expensive podcast there'd only been two or three uh including your book for the first 40 minutes but in that last five minutes now we've become a very expensive podcast again in terms of the amount people need to buy from a bookshop uh thank you so much the uh, uh school for good mothers is as i said it's fantastic i read it in one fell swoop and it is it was uh I, well i had no idea what it was going to be and all I can tell you, everyone listening, is uh, what it was, is one of my favourite novels that I've read this year. It was uh, My Monticello was another one that I absolutely ad ad adored this year. Uh, but it is uh, it is superb. And I'm so glad to see, I didn't actually notice at the bottom there, the fact that both Octavia Butler and Margaret Atwood are mentioned as well uh, by Robert Jones Jr. There deserves an honoured place next to the works of Margaret Atwood and Octavia Butler. And, and I think it does. I think I'd, I love Octavia Butler and, uh, and, and Margaret Atwood. And it is it's tremendous so thank you so much for joining us thank you everyone who's uh listened and uh remember as i said if you can support us by patreon that is brilliant but it'll always be available for uh free uh as well as long as we can keep doing it thank you very much to our producer trent burton and hopefully we'll be back with josie long soon bye-bye thank you so much thanks for listening don't forget to like rate subscribe five stars on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to the show Tickets for Nine Lessons are on sale now, cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons. Sign up to the Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles. Back next week with another new episode. I guess next week will be the author Daryl Bullock. Uh, we're going to chat about his new book, Pride, Pop and Politics. 
You might have heard us talk about Daryl uh, on the podcast uh, quite a few times in the past, particularly about his excellent book, David Bowie Made Me Gay, 100 Years of LGBT Music. Uh, so we'll talk a bit about that as well. Until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.